Dan here. This week's episode is with Jennifer Finn, MD of ACY, an energy efficiency contractor based in Glasgow, working across Scotland. Yeah, Jennifer's great. A friend of the show, a client of Alex and I. ACY is a firm that's worked for decades in energy efficiency measures from when it was just called EWI to now when it's beginning to acquire a status as a, as a multidisciplinary specialism within the construction industry. She brings a wealth of experience to the conversation and we're, we were delighted to have a chance to talk with her. So that'll be up in a minute. Also, on Thursday, I'm going to reissue the second part of our conversation with Robin McAlpine because, apologies to anyone who tried to listen to it, uh, we just found out that the first part had been repeated twice. So I'll rectify that. I'll republish it. It's already been fixed on the feed, but just to get it in front of people, now the problem's been fixed. It will be there on Thursday. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the episode. It's with me, Jeff, Alex, and Jennifer. Um, yeah, we'll be back with you soon. Although we might be a little bit more sporadic throughout August because of time pressures on everyone. We've got a few bonus episodes that we can put out, so we'll still give you something. All right, well, enjoy. Cheers. Bye. Hi, Jeff. Good morning. Hi, Hi good morning. Sorry I'm late. Just, That's um, all right. Oh, yeah. so you can see Jeff was trying to make himself presentable. <laughs> yeah, well, podcasts suit me, you know, face for radio and all that. Yeah. All right, so shall we start with introductions? We're here today with Jennifer Finn of AC White, Alex and Jeff. Duncan's too busy and Sarah's at work, so they won't be joining us. But yeah, thanks for joining us today, Jennifer. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, for full disclosure, like we, Alex and I do a bit of work with Jennifer as well. That's how we came to know each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, a friend introduced us because we had a similar attitude to what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, more pertinently, she was... Um, I don't know. Is it fair to say you were incensed by some of a podcast at one point? That might be a bit melodramatic. Ah, how does this go? But I've certainly been engaged. I think some of the content and and the areas that you've covered have been brilliant. There was a couple, um, most notably probably one more recently with Peter Rickaway around Paz and kind of the state of the industry and that kind of thing. That that yeah, you know, I did. I did get pretty vocal as I was sitting in the car listening to it. And then and then actually I, I was really, really glad to see that you addressed some of that in kind of a recent episode of the, the contractor's right to reply. Yeah. Which I thought was a really brilliant take and kind of extension of the the original themes. Um so yeah, I guess I'm I'm kind of representing the industry to an extent, although not speaking for them. Just on you know, at times what we're dealing with as well, and that if we don't understand everybody's position and perspectives in this, actually, we're never going to move the dial on anything. Yeah, uh, I think that understanding piece, that curiosity of kind of being open-minded, not judging, and and just enabling the right conversations is has to be the start point. That, that's really interesting. If I might jump in, Dan. Sorry. Just, yeah, yeah, of course. Because I, because Jennifer, I I don't know you as well as the others, obviously. Um, I mean, I know I've heard. Uh, uh, I have heard about. You know, your reputation or your your, your uh, an ACY's reputation does proceed to an extent, but I can play the useful fool here, perhaps you know, to, to help our listeners. What do ACY do? What what are you about? If you could if you could sum it up briefly yeah. in a non kind of marketingy kind of way, you know, that would yeah. be great. So we we've been in operation for well, we'll be fifty next year. So for the last fifty years, nearly forty-nine years, we have been operating within the kind of social housing space. On you know, initially we were kind of a small subcontractor, built up to main contractor status. Um, we can, we've been doing external wall insulation, obviously, as an energy efficiency measure for over 30 years now. So it was very much kind of bread and butter for us. You know, we've been talking about energy wow. efficiency for a wow. really long time. So Seriously, you've got 30-year-old external insulation yeah, jobs, yeah, have you? Yeah, that's still in existence in Glasgow. And they're still up? They're still yeah. on the buildings? I could show you pictures of them. Oh, my, Jeff is getting excited. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, a caveat to that, obviously, the products that were used at that point you know, wouldn't be the products that we would install now. You know, certain things have moved on, but the principle, you know, has been the same and the makeup of the system is largely unchanged over that that period of time. Then obviously with the introduction of funding and the real focus on this space, and there were so many new entrants and new people talking about this as though it was a new thing, which, you know, was good in a way because it then, you know, it, everyone started to get engaged in it and, and you know, there, there was a lot of kind of noise and activity around it. 
with a lot of unintended consequences as well. But, but we've kind of been there through the duration, before the funding, during the funding, and kind of where we are now. So, you know, we are, we're a main contractor, we do large scale major refurbishment projects, predominantly social housing, but with the, the funding, particularly the Heaps Abs funding, we like to do mixed tenure area based type stuff because of the impact that you can deliver with that. I would say where the business is at now, you know, we, we, we did a video recently actually, and, and the way we kind of termed it is that we almost see ourselves now as as being here to help provide kind of net zero solutions for clients. Because I think even introducing some of that terminology and wording, it's starting to move everyone's mindset on how we look at the types of projects and, and, and how we approach these things needs to be with that kind of different mindset. Absolutely. That, that's amazing. I mean, your track record, just having that history, it's, it is, I'm looking at it from an Irish context more, I suppose. And, and there are some historic external installation works, for instance, you know, and thankfully the ones that were done early on were probably done quite carefully um, without the, you know, because, because it was new at the time and the kind of fly by night contractor who's just in it because it's a grant wasn't wasn't part of the equation at all really you know so we i mean the, the earliest one i know of in ireland dates from 1966 and that's a real outlier uh, and that was uh, that was the offices of aeroboard and installation manufacturer because they had a mad inventor kind of uh, their founder guy basically who just decided to try things out you know and and, and found the with a with like it was like an inch of EPS with a, with a, a pebble dash finish or whatever over the top of it. But they took core samples 10 years ago or so when it was found to be perfect, basically, you know, dry as a bone beneath it. Um, and obviously, you know, EPS being EPS, it hadn't lost any of the insulation value. But that, that no, that is amazing. So, so you, 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 you know, uh, as much as you'll defend it and you're right to defend the contractor's perspective, um, because the reality is that it's possible to make a, to do a good job or make a mess of any aspect of construction. And there are people doing both, whether it's designers, whether it's contractors, whatever, there's, there's good and bad. And everyone to quote Stevie Wonder. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, you know, uh, that's amazing, but, but it's, it's an amazing kind of in, insight to have. Do, do you look then at, um, at the work that you've seen, you know, going on in recent years? Could you see uh, mistakes, you know, pent up mistakes or mistakes are about to happen because of the approaches that some people who were maybe not so knowledgeable and didn't have the, the, the track record to, to, to do what we're making? Oh, absolutely. I mean... I think it's important to look back at where we were. So those examples, and like you kind of touched on there that we did all of those years ago, you had a full team, design team of experts, professionals involved in that. You know, the client, so the local authority at the time would produce, you know, the pack, the specification, you know, their architects, their quantity surveyors, their clerk of works. You know, there was a whole team of people involved in the design, the, pl the planning of that job. So that even when it, you know, at the, at the point of tender, we had a pack, a design pack, specification pack that had everything. And it was really clear what that client was looking to do. We followed that. So we priced that, obviously, won the work and then delivered in line with that kind of, you know, the specification, the bills of quantities, et cetera, that had been produced. We did a, we did a presentation. It was a Scottish Government Quality Symposium. I can't remember how many years ago that was now. And we ran the, the presentation and basically what we were saying was like a lot of the issues that have come up in recent years were, un, were avoidable. And actually all we have to do is go back to basics, ensure that the right people are invo involved at the right stage in the process, doing the bits that they expect are, that they are really, really good at, that they're qualified to do. And actually we have all the solutions already. So it was called back to basics and that was kind of the premise of it all. We've gone from that to at times tendering in situations, procurement exercises where there is no performance or design specification whatsoever. We're asked to price a square meterage of EWI with very little information on, you know, there might be a U value to be achieved, but in and around that, very little information. And, and you know, at times I've had conversations with clients to say, but, you know, you're going to have multiple contractors pricing multiple different things and you're not actually going to know what that looks like until the install phase. And I do, you know, understanding everyone's perspective in that, I do feel for local authorities as well, particularly those who have had stock transfers over a period and don't have that internal resource to be able to know, you know, the, the bits that, you know, the gaps that, that, that perhaps exist in that process. But all of these things, you know, errors, all of these stages are what leads to the, you know, the real disasters that we've seen recently. 
as like I say, we, we know how to do this stuff and we've been doing it for a really long time. Well, you make it sound so simple because actually it is. If, if you if you just pause and, and understand how, how this should work, right? Um, yeah. And I suppose the, the, the fear is maybe if there's a rush to get things done or if there's a new, I don't know, new kind of uh, a new government policy and, and funding, uh, you know, lots of funding made available without that capacity maybe uh, from the procurement perspective to understand that, uh, yes, this can be simple, but uh, it can also go horribly wrong if you, if oh, you don't absolutely. put the right ask in, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah, uh, and I think part of the issue was they started classing you know, external wall insulation projects, which are construction construction projects as energy efficiency projects. And that change in classification meant that they were then procured the way, you know, loft insulation or light bulbs, you know, the way other types of things had been procured rather than treating them like construction projects. And I think that classification actually led to a lot of the, the things being stripped out that we know are so fundamental to the success of a project. Yeah, it's really interesting. So, I mean, the episode the other week, we talked ourselves through from the, the position which could be described as blaming the contractor to blaming the procurement people. And what you've described is that the ability to procure effectively appears to have been lost within local authorities over the years. I mean, yeah, there's, well, I mean, it's, it's part of a more general trend. Like the, the quality of service local authorities have been able to offer has been degraded by funding cuts and pressure to deal with inadequate solutions. And that's on top of all the, the issues that you find in any procurement process, which can contribute to a lack of quality in the final product. So, I mean, this part of this conversation came up from you and I talking. So when Alex and I were up in Scotland at the CIH conference, sort of creating some podcast episodes, which we've still not released, actually. I should put one of them out since it's been mentioned here. Um, we were hosting that session with Laurie McElroy and, oh, I forget the name of her colleague, Gillian Campbell, about the Renfrewshire project. Mm-hmm. And we were supposed to have time to do a Q&A, but the presentation ran over. And part of what we were asking you is, because we were going to be speaking to the, the housing industry at large, what do they need to know? And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm going to anyway. Uh, the, the broad, <laughs> the broad uh, response that you gave, or the, the the essence of the response you offered, was, "Well, they need to get better at procurement," and that could be asking questions rather than asking for specific measures. I mean, broadly, what? Yeah. Well, I would what say does the housing industry need to do. Like, yeah, how I'm going to pick up on that word, and what it's not about them getting better at procurement you know they, they have very competent procurement professionals that are there I think it's about designing procurement that's fit for purpose and I think the start point in that is understanding what they actually want what they genuinely want you know because there's a lot of kind of lip service given to things like skills and training community wealth building etc is it really as important as they say because I think in a procurement scenario where you say, yeah, we want all these community benefits and we want skills and training and we want quality and we want good health and safety, but it's still going to be price driven. That's a mixed message. And, and we have to move away from that. And if and if the, the price is ultimately the most important thing and that's all they care about, then that's fine. But it's really about understanding the unintended consequences of the way that, that tender is made up and the way elements of it are weighted. Um, and and being a, you know, a contractor being able to write a response, a written response with no evidence or anything to back up the words that are on that page. Yeah. And then that gets put in a drawer and they go and they do a great job or they do a terrible job and it's never looked at again. And that's OK. And that was deemed to be a success because they saved X amount of money on it. I think it's that mindset that needs to change. Um, so it's not about, kind of you know, beating procurement. Procurement is a great um mechanism it should be there to enable it should be there to generate value to to be able to get to achieving what it is they want but the start point has to be what do you want you know that's such a common flaw in any procurement process so like what alex and i do websites advertising campaigns whatever all too often a client will come to you with a a specific ask rather than here is my goal and it's our job then to try and strip it back. You say you want this, but why do you want it? Yeah. Because what you're suggesting, it's going to make our lives much harder to achieve the goal that you say you want. 
I think it's also important to ask, I mean, the experts basically uh, what they need to, to, what am I supposed to ask for? So I was doing, we're doing a job, it's just a, an easy one. It's a, a website strategy rethink and we're working with their uh, SEO agency. So we do qualitative research. So we, we rely on other companies to do quantitative research. And I don't know what to ask necessarily. I know very well how to ask questions of people, but when it comes to the analytics, it's very easy to just ask, well, I want to know how many people are going on the website and I want to know this and that. But when I spoke to them, I picked up the phone and I said to them, look, I'm going to send you some questions over email, but it's so important that you challenge me back and ask me, what do I really want? Or have I missed anything? Because I think that what we've seen as well on the procurement side is that there seems to be this aspect where they just tell you, as we just said, we want this and that's it. And you just have to fill in this box. And if there's anything that we've missed, well, too bad, uh, you can ignore it. And I think that's the problem. I think there needs to be a right or, or a duty to be able to say, no, actually, have you thought of all these things? And can we actually challenge the procurement side as well? Yeah, because, you know, from a, a contractor's perspective, and I guess touching on, you know, the previous episodes, we can only work with what, with the documents that we've been given, with the information that's provided to us within that tender scenario. You know, we're talking about contractual stuff here that we are bound to. That's really, really important. And if everything within that exercise is saying, yeah, okay, we're asking for this, this and this, but actually all we're interested in is price, then you are creating an environment where that contractor has to be focused ultimately on that element of the work. And, you know, we, uh, I, don't, I don't need to talk at any length about how, you know, tough the marketplace has been, particularly over recent years. The margins that we work to are so, so tight, like unbelievably tight. And when you you pitch that against the risk involved in what we do, you know, the, the amount, you know, the, the, the labour heavy, risky, working at height, things that can happen on a day-to-day -day basis that we're trying to avoid from a health and safety perspective. Those two things just don't add up. When I speak to friends of mine who are involved in fintech and others, and I hear about their margins, it's just... It's so disproportionate. Like it shouldn't. It shouldn't be like that. But but anyway, that's where we are. That you know, that's the world that we live in. But if we want to move away from contractors who are price focused and looking to you know claw back whatever they can, we have to shift the dial on on where we're placing the value within procurement. And and that's not to say you know a lot of people are 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 completely on the same page. This isn't just you know me speaking here. I've heard clients, procurement professionals, and others, government saying you know that's exactly where we want to go with this. I think it's just in order to actually get there, we need to have all parties involved in that conversation to say, well, if you do X, then Y happens. If you do, you know, so it's almost like working through all the scenarios to get to that right outcome. Do you, do you think do you think that will ever happen? Yes. Because the, the price thing, I think, is always going to be there. I don't think we can ever move away from that. So how do we work around it? Do you know, I, I'm an optimist at heart. Well, re, a realist optimist. I would say, yeah, and I think if it's ever going to happen, now is the time. You know, we when we look at the, the challenge in terms of net zero climate change, the scale that, you know, of rollout that's required, we can't continue to do things the way we've always done them and expect a different outcome. So now is the time. If that change is ever going to happen, I feel like it's now. And for me, it's all just about, you know, we've got the right elements there. It's just about that start point. Again, I've said, of, you know, what is it that you want? You know, do you want a program that's that's built around community wealth building? Well, make that your start point and then build everything out from there. Do you, do you think this is really interesting? Do, do you think um, uh, literacy, just building on what you're saying there, literacy across the board in terms of understanding you know, you mentioned uh, classifying uh, uh, external insulation works as energy efficiency rather than rather than construction, for instance. You know, literacy and an understanding of of uh, of what you're trying to achieve. I mean, uh, down to understanding, um, you know, uh, what approaches, what you need to do to make a, a, an energy efficiency project or a retrofit project work. Um, do you think that's missing uh, and and do you think that's something that would be beneficial i mean i mean across the board you know i, I know stories of contractors uh for instance not to be contractors coming in meeting whether it's specifiers or people from a procurement perspective and saying the right buzzwords but maybe not having the substance if you just ask a simple question you know to, to, to back that up you know um and um and i think the same can apply in lots of areas because we've got what to many people are new concepts here even yeah. if they're not new ideas. Um, so should there be kind of a, an effort or a requirement more to kind of to to properly educate everyone involved in the process so that we can have, 
you know, reasonable discussions about this stuff, and 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 actually start from that from that place in terms of of of, of how how you design the whole process. Yeah. Absolutely. Maybe yeah. to flip it around as well. How do you spot a shark? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because that that will be increasingly a problem as more market as that as more money is made available to this sector. Yeah, there's going to be more people swirling. Totally. And just on your point there, Jeff, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think. You know, we talk a lot in our business about things being accessible and inclusive. And I think with the whole green agenda and net zero, we're we're at risk of making it not accessible and not inclusive for people. So it's not just about the what, it's about the why and, and educating people that and, and bringing them into the conversation. You know, it's easy. You know, we're immersed in this stuff and it's easy for us to sit and talk and, oh, this isn't working and that's not working. But we have to understand where everyone's coming from and communicate in a way where people understand. Maybe not the whole thing, that can be overwhelming, but their contribution to that and the impact of not making certain decisions or of making other decisions. So I think that's a massive thing, is making it inclusive. Yeah, it's interesting taking it into that space. So you're primarily focused on social housing. And this is a sector that we focus on a lot, you know, public and institutional work. But that's almost ignoring the challenges associated with the able to pay market. Yeah. Well, no, it is absolutely ignoring the challenges associated because often I find that's just too difficult a conversation for anyone to have. Again, speaking with the, the CIH, so we interviewed a bunch of professional landlords yeah. and their response to the, the challenges, I mean, they want government support because they... I mean, they just don't know how to approach it because it's a fundamental threat to their business model, EPC ratings rising. And it's a mass program of works that's ultimately going to be required, which is just being applied on a a person-to-person basis. Like You guys have a lot more experience in Mm -hmm. rolling this sort of stuff out. And in spite of like typologies being the same across an area, like a, a, a community that you work in, we all know the truth of that, like building to building, as much as they might have been planned out the same, they're all unique. They're all snowflake. Yeah. I mean, what lessons can folk learn from you lot? What lessons could an able to pay market? Because there is a nascent one out there. Yeah. And um, yeah, the able to pay, as you say, it's it's almost been the elephant in the room for too long now. Yeah. Um, but when you look at 75% of our housing stock, you know, sits maybe not able to pay, but but certainly within that private space. You know, we, we can't afford this and there needs to be urgency around it. And I think waiting for mindset change to just naturally happen with people for them to suddenly prioritise, you know, maintaining their property and climate change, that, that's unrealistic. You know, we need we need something that's going to accelerate it, you know, almost like a circuit breaker. So, you know, if, if we relate it to cars at the moment, you know, one in every 19 cars purchased at the moment apparently is a Tesla. Now, is that because all of a sudden all of those people have become so switched on to the climate debate and, you know, they're going green because of that? Or is it the cost of fuel that's now driven them to make that kind of, you know, economically led decision? So I think we have to, regardless of what what tenure, what property, we're talking about people at the end of the day and it's understanding the psychology of people, what's going to motivate them. You know, whether it's carrot or stick, you know, what is it that's going to, you know, encourage them to make that decision whilst also educating them. So they have the facts and they have the the step by step manageable things that they can do, you know, rather than working out how to get from, you know, A to Z. Let's just work them through. Well, don't worry about that now. Just let's talk about B. Let's talk about the next step, the thing that can, you know, help start to get you on that journey. It's it's also um, I think the, the problem I would worry about in, in in that sector specifically is you've got such a cacophony of voices out there uh, of people with different products and services to sell you know who in many cases are you know completely discordant uh, with each other in terms of what they're proposing now a lot of it's well meaning um, people with different different opinions some people with uh, newer entrants to the market with maybe less uh, of an understanding of of the the, the physics behind this gun, you know, the building physics and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, but I would say, and I don't know if uh, uh, any similar moves in the UK, but the the, the, way, the area I would look optimism here in, in terms of a driver of this, I think when the facts, when you feel the facts are on your side, ultimately in the end, you should get to the right position, you know. Um, but 
it's just a question of of how many eggs you have to to, to break, you know, uh, how much of a mess you, you have to make it in, 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 or how many failed omelets you make before you make an edible one, you know. Um, yeah. But the point is that um, in Ireland, for instance, I would take great heart, even more than than the government policy almost, in the fact that uh, one of our pillar banks, uh, AIB, recently has partnered with uh, the Irish Green Building Council and is introducing green mortgages based for, for new build and retrofit based on their pretty robust, you know, uh, sustainability certification system. So so I think there are things like that. There's ways of putting manners on on these suppliers, but it requires, uh, you need these kind of benevolent, uh, knowledgeable entities, uh, whether it's government, you know, in government or whether it's, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the likes of uh, sustainable building organizations um, to, to drive standards, you know. Do those mortgages, do they have any post-occupancy requirement, like post-occupancy data assessment? They, the, the IGBC do look for that for uh, for uh, for their for their higher ratings. It's one of the things they look look for is uh, is is monitoring. Yeah. Um, so I I, uh, I'm, I don't know whether it'll be a requirement. That's a good question. Um, and uh, it's a question that a journalist should like me or a supposed <laughs> journalist. You can't do everything, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> you can't do it all on your own. No, it's just it came up with. Uh, so I was having a chat with Gary from EP Group the other day, and we were talking about the. The dearth of post-occupancy assessment. You know, mm. we assess stuff when it's built, and we assess the design. We never tend to assess whether it actually worked or not. Yeah, like no, it's, it's all on paper. It's just yeah. oh, we, if we've ticked the boxes, we filled it out. It works on paper, and we never ever check if these things are still working. I mean, there's a few examples. I think I think Jeff, you've covered them, but only just a few. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a ma- it's a massive, massive gap. There is so little data on any of this stuff. And I think that's the kind of thing that actually would help support procurement and others if they can make data-driven decisions on, you know, what's worked, what hasn't, you know, what gets the best bang for their buck. You know, we have to talk about value. Of course, price is important. But removing the kind of subjectivity and the assumptions around a lot of this stuff and actually getting to the point of, yeah, having that data and evidence to back up the decisions that we're making. So just a quick question. Do you, do you actually get asked uh, on projects if you can, let's say, install... Uh, sensors within the fabric of the building or around it has that been often asked of you so the conversation has started so yes a requirement of a lot of the heaps projects you know there's there's recommendations for monitoring you know kind of pre-works and and post-work monitoring that happens whether there's enough analysis done on the information that's gathered from that I don't know so I guess that would be my question would be are are we using yeah okay so we've got the mechanism there are we are we doing anything with it um because of course the data is only as good as as the analysis and and what you take from it at the end yeah perhaps we need there to needs, needs some... commitment not just the monitoring but to to to, to you know to, to working with the system that's designed to process and analyze that information you know and, and report back on it that it's a whole process that has to be, be, be baked in if you're talking about social housing, is that not already baked in in terms of uh, the the tenants of social housing? Because if you're applying energy efficiency measures to make their lives more comfortable and to reduce the the cost of living to them, so you know that spectre of fuel poverty is entering the fray. I mean, is, do you not find out very quickly in terms of feedback from tenants, fewer complaints, fewer uh, broken tenancies? People paying their rent because they can definitely afford it, like things like that. So that yeah. show up. Do you know, it's it's a, you know when we're looking at you know future planning for our business and and rules etc are going to be required. We're looking at data rules within our business. You know people who are specifically focused on whether it be data architecture or you know being able to do something with this. I don't know what capacity exists within local authorities for those types of roles at the moment because you know to be able to manage that information is a full time job and and you know, it's some of the scales for some of the local authorities. It's a team's full-time job. So there's probably resourcing issues for that, but it is one of the dots that we need to join up on all of this stuff is is making sure that we're getting the right information. Yeah. So you would be able to see a specific area if its Mm -hmm. energy consumption has been reduced over a specific period of time. But then you kind of get into a conversation on education as well, because just because there's maybe not been a massive difference in you know, energy savings, that could be an education piece rather than effectiveness of the measures piece. So then that bit needs to be looked at as well. So it's it's like joining up the dots on all of these things of like all of the factors that that impact 
the, the performance and the success of, of any energy efficiency project. <laughs> so we're back to the literacy part again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> One thing I do want to add as well is that we have to be very careful. I think it's worth having a bit of a warning here that data, obviously we know that data is the real money spinner. You know, all the companies now built around data, uh, cloud infrastructure is all built around collecting information and, and monetizing it. And I think that's where also I think all of us here and all the people hopefully who, who are listening have a duty to make sure that this data when it's collected is used properly. So that's what I was very interested in hearing that I'd never known, I never knew that Smart meters, you know, they've got a lot of stigma attached because they don't always work, et cetera. And, you know, where's this data going? But actually, there are incredibly strict rules around how that data is collected and how it's used. And I think that's the same thing we need to, to, to accept that it's, we can put sensors everywhere. They, they are very cheap. They're very easy to install, but they reveal a lot about uh, personal behavior in buildings. Yeah. And it cannot be misused. It cannot be just handled by anyone. So I think there's a lot of conversation to be had eventually as well around how we use data and how we handle it and keep it um, private. Yeah. Have you heard the conspiracy I, stuff coming up about smart meters at the moment? Off of this, no. the, the October don't pay movement campaign that's that's coming up. So like mm-hmm. this this mass non-payment of energy bills in October. That's Yeah, how's that going to work out for you? Great. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> but this is it. Out of that, so there are, there are impacts on oh. credit ratings if you break a direct debit, which are of concern to people. But there's also rumours developing about whether if you have a smart meter, the energy company can switch you to a, a payment meter at the flick of a switch from HQ. Could that even be possible? <laughs> like it, it sounds preposterous, but uh, yeah. doesn't help the reputation of the energy companies at all. I know. I think that, you know, in that data space, you know, it's about, I guess, not dabbling in data, you know, understanding that data has to be respected. If you have qualified professionals working with data, they will understand things like the ethics around it, the governance around it, you know, not just looking at the data they've got, but also looking at the data they've not got and, you know, forming a kind of a representative picture, not just the picture that you want to paint. Um, so it is really important, like say, Alex, that, that you have the right kind of structure around that. Do you know, do you know what as well? I think um, I wonder... Like this is all really important, right? Of course, uh, and there are there clearly are missing gaps in in this regard. But actually, there's a fair body of research out there that you know more than more than uh, listeners might think from 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 what we've been talking about uh, on post occupancy evaluation of, of of buildings in these kinds of climates and uh, with, with different standards and so on. I kind of feel like you know if, with certain standards, I mean, passive house would be a, a good example, and Enerfit to a lesser extent, but but same, same kind of principles. Um, we kind of know how it works, you know. We, we, uh, there there are variables, um, but we kind of know what they are too, you know. Uh, we we know uh, um, that not every single dwelling uh, built to a specific standard, whatever it is, is going to perform exactly in line with the standard because people are different. And if you give them the, the scope to use the building in different ways, you know, uh, if you give them a, a heating system that's capable of bringing the building up to 24, 25 degrees or more, uh, some people will do that. Or you go the, the route that uh, Exeter did with uh, with Knight's Place, uh, their 18 unit uh, passive sheltered housing scheme with the German, uh, dogmatic German passive house architect, Thomas Gartner saying, nope, they're passive houses, they're apartments, they don't need heating systems, so I'm not putting them in. But you can't use a heating system that's not there, right? Um, so they just have um, little batteries on the ventilation system. It's a bit brutal, um, but it's it, the post-occupancy data has shown, you know, five years after they were built, nine of the 18 un- units, the elderly people living in them still hadn't turned the battery heaters on even, just a, ba- just a little battery on, on, the, on the ventilation system, right? So the point is that I, I kind of wonder if one way of solving this data problem is that there might, might be certain standards and approaches if, if we're become satisfied that we have enough information on them where we don't need to do the, the, that work we don't you know uh, the, the issue really only applies with less well proven or less less well tested approaches surely right i guess then it's almost that qualitative versus quantitative thing where you know that's i guess looking at the building like the things that you can kind of control so the building yeah. the measures and all of that stuff the unpredictable bit of that is the people, is the interaction they have with the measures, how they learn to live with it, and how they actually manage that going forward. So it's probably maybe finding a way to look at that full picture. Mm-hmm. And if the evidence exists, you know, how do we share that in a way that's that's really useful for people? Can I maybe now, I think it's the right time to sort of talk about, you said qualitative and quantitative. So 
can we talk about these people that mess up all these lovely uh, buildings and make them, you know, they open windows when they're not supposed to, et cetera. I think you, Jennifer, you're, you're really focused on, on the people side. And that's one of the reasons we said earlier that we, we work together because we share obviously the same values and we're all about user experience. So could you tell us a bit more about, you know, the, where do tenants and, and homeowners, where do they live within, within your, your world? Ah, do you know what? I'll, I'll give you an example from, not, not from us. Um, in, I think it was 2018, I visited uh, Vienna. And it, was a, it was a kind of uh, building future conference that they had. And one of the visits was out to a smart city. You know, incredibly designed thing, you know, kind of 20 minute neighborhood type concept. Everyone had everything. They didn't need to drive their cars. Everything was there and accessible. And a lot of, so it was all kind of mainly flatted um, properties. And a lot of them had been built to passive house standards, or certainly that was the intention from the outset. Then they realized that actually they'd moved too quickly for people, that they weren't ready to live in passive and had to kind of revert to some kind of heating system that made people more comfortable. I think that's just an example. Um, And I mean, they're, you know, light years ahead of a lot of other countries and this kind of stuff. But it's just an example of if you don't build people in at the outset, if you don't bring them on that journey with you, all of your great intentions can effectively be kind of wasted by just, you know, forgetting that kind of critical element of the people, you know, and, and, and it applies to any kind of change. You know, we, we talk about, you know, business, we talk about change management. We talk about bringing our, our people, our employees on the journey with us whenever we're, we're making change in the business. And it's the same principles in this scenario. We have to, we have to apply, you know, that change management to the people in these buildings and, and ensuring that, that they, have the information in a way that's accessible and inclusive and and they get it as i say you know remembering that they're not immersed the way it's, we are it's a great point and i just think you know uh the culture shock of taking somebody you know no no open fire stove or anything like that no boiler you're yeah. just plonked in this this space that's got nothing basically in it yeah. um you know um and uh and some people i mean i i I, I know I completely agree with you. I, I, some people talk about having kind of um, almost placebo style controls, heating controls on, on walls, you know, uh, that are not almost connected to anything, you know. Um, and I don't, as much as I've got kind of despotic tendencies, I think that probably is, you know, is too far. But I will say, um, I, I think the kind of work that that people like Bill Bordas and Adrian Lehman have, uh, have done, uh, among others, uh, Fionn Stevens and so on, um, on uh, post occupancy evaluation, and I mean, the, Adrian makes this excellent point. We had him on the podcast some time ago. That um, if people, if the users of buildings understand the design intent, uh, they're much more forgiving of it. You, you, you know, this kind of paternalistic approach of just building something for people and then, you know, uh, not engaging with them at all. You know, I mean, I, I would say that I think I think you can probably push people. I think this is one of the things that Adrian was kind of getting at, or my interpretation of it is that you can probably bring people along a lot more. Uh, even with quite radical changes in, in how their buildings uh, are, are, you know, the measures you put into buildings uh, from a heat perspective and so on. If you just sit down with them and talk it through with them in a way, in a, in a, in a careful, sensible kind of way, but 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 engagement with people, um, you know, uh, and, and making them not feel powerless yeah. is so important. Yeah. Oh, con- control's massive. And I think, I think it's kind of understanding human nature, you know, we, we, you know, we're all individual in a way, but we have these tendencies that kind of align us all and in, in how we react to these things. If you try and push people too quickly without, you know, reasonable time and explanation, they will they will fight back. You know, they will push back. Um, so I think it's about understanding. You might not be able to change that full mindset in that conversation, but you can at least start to open them up to considering these things. And then it's like an accumulative effect. So, you know, you can't make that message once. It has to be repeated multiple times and then it and then it starts to build and build and build um and as i say we see it in the business we see it with our customers it yeah. can it has to be considered um, just as a side note we've had a big influx of listeners since that episode was published so that's just go back and listen to it how we actually use buildings with adrian lehman and bill Bordas. that's episode 31 from this year but yeah well, that was a brilliant episode uh if you haven't listened to it jennifer i'd yeah. recommend it they're really fascinating guys and they'd be well worth i think everyone should talk to them if they get the opportunity they've been doing this stuff for 40 years yeah maybe longer so so we 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 touched on the na- the need for collaboration proper collaboration earlier and which it, actually that echoes what we were talking about with russell last week uh from parity projects 
because this is multidisciplinary, multi-skilled, and it's ever more difficult to get a complete picture. You can't do it on your own because there are so many perspectives that need to be fulfilled. And we're talking about community development because if you just have the people who build the buildings and you don't bring on the communities, well, you're sort of dooming yourself to failure as well. But there are other aspects as well which lend themselves to dealing with other aspects of this, the potential within retrofit in particular that can lead to other benefits, co-benefits as they're usually referred to yeah. uh, in the, the, the specs that we receive. In terms of community building and community wealth building, and yeah. you've been quite involved in that. I always bang on about Preston model because there is so much opportunity within this space to build expertise within a locality. So the Preston model, the economic model, rather than the Preston retrofit catastrophe, which they shouldn't be confused. But I think it's worth introducing the listeners to a bit of the work that you're doing in that regard with your Skills Academy. Because I think that's the thing that really sold you on me and Alex when you told us about that. It's like, all right, yeah, we're definitely going to work together. We'll make it work. Whatever it is, we'll make it work. So, yeah, if you, if you won't mind explaining a bit about the, the Skills Academy, what you're doing, uh, what's motivated it, I think it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. Ah, right. Where to begin? So we we developed the, the well the concept for the Skills Academy back in 2017, and at that point, I mean, you know, skills gaps within construction. You know, that wasn't a new thing. That that's been going on. Like we've lost generations of tradespeople. That's not a that's not a new thing. And for years, we'd supplemented it with you know predominantly Eastern European workforce who'd come over and done a really great job of of kind of helping plug that gap for us. But we knew that you know. The biggest challenge I see to this whole net zero and climate change thing is is scale and mass rollout. Like you know, the technical stuff, we, we you know we'll work through that. You know, the design solutions will get there. You know, the innovation will come. It's the scale and the mass rollout that that for me is going to be the biggest challenge. And we need people to do that. You know, what what we do is. You know, whilst there have been really great advancements in offsite and various other types, we still need people fundamentally to do some of the trades that kind of underpin a lot of the energy efficiency measures. So we knew that for our business to scale, you know, having that pipeline of talent was going to be so, so important. And, and most importantly, a sustainable pipeline of talent. Being able to do, you know, the way we work at the moment, uh, you know, in construction in general, we're used to travelling to the places where we work. Yeah, so it's just, there's almost just an acceptance that that's what happens in construction. You know, we're here, we win a, a contract in Aberdeen, that's great. We go up to Aberdeen and we take the people with us. Like that, that's not a sustainable model. That's not the way we should be working. So it was how do we create something that A, addresses our need for that sustainable pipeline of talent, but does it in a way that's that's kind of, that's driven by the communities that we're working in. You know, why can't we create local jobs for local people doing the work that's happening in their area? How can we create something that's replicable across the country? So that was kind of the start point for us. So we engaged with, with Energy Skills Partnership and then West College Scotland at the time. Tommy Campbell, who we've just brought on this year as our Skills Academy principal, was actually head of construction at West College at the time. So we kind of worked together to kind of come up with, you know, it was our baby initially of how we were going to do this. And we we came up with this model that was completely different to what, you know, when I think whenever anybody talks about training and construction, they talk about apprenticeship and nothing else. You know, it's like it's the only method of training and, and skills development that exists. And whilst it absolutely has a place, you know, certainly for our business, the success of it had been limited by by lots of different factors. You know, the age of the learner that it was targeted at, the mechanisms for utilising other tradespeople to train those individuals and the expectation that, you know, you're expecting them to be a good trainer and you're expecting them to have the time and to be able to focus on that individual whilst they're also trying to generate work, you know, generate output and, and productivity yeah, yeah. themselves. It's, it's too slow as well. That's Duncan's point. For, exactly. For the need, yeah. like... You can't wait Absolutely. three years. You've just got to get on it. Exactly. And learners, you know, the, the world has changed. You know, people don't want to take four years in a lot of instances. So I think we have to we have to respond to that. We have to respond to what learners are looking for. Otherwise, the reality is we're going to lose them to other industries that have evolved their kind of thinking on training and sales development. So whilst I say, you know, apprenticeship still has had a place, 
we wanted to create something that that encouraged diversity, that encouraged, you know, a mix of backgrounds and ages. And it was almost like a kind of a funnel in for people or a route for people in so that we could kind of assess, you know, their their previous life experience, their, their previous skill set, and then create something that allowed them to get into work as quickly as possible, while still maintaining the quality of standards that we as a business will hold ourselves to, but also that it's kind of the industry standard from a kind of MVQ perspective as well. That's, that's brilliant. I, I, I should say um, it might be worth a while having a look at some, there's some interesting stuff happening in Ireland. Some government-backed centres of excellence have been developed on on, on retrofit and, and low energy building. And for instance, I was just looking at the website, one of the, one of the entities at Mount, in Mount Lucas, it's in the Midlands, basically in Ireland. Part of this kind of just transition because you have a lot of um, based uh, workers in the, in the state-owned kind of uh, peat uh, extraction kind of energy company, you know. Um, and um, they've they've got courses now, uh, including so we our standard for new homes in Ireland is is called uh, and across the EU um, is called uh, NZ or nearly zero energy building. And uh, that's been in, in in Ireland since 2019. So they got, for instance, a F- NZEB fundamental awareness course, which is uh, one day, I think, one day on site delivery and two half days online. Um, and they've got uh, then they've got courses that branch out off that on ventilation, on on uh, on uh, external wall insulation, on air tightness, and so on, which which are you know a, 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 I think. Uh, typically, well, some some of them are, are under development, but they're a little bit longer. But they're they're kind of pitched at a level, I think, where you're kind of trying to give people a, a you know a, a quite quite quick immersion in the key principles. Um, and that approach, I think, you know, and the assumption, of course, that people who are not just at a junior level, but people maybe at a more senior level too, all kind of you know, we all need to kind of go back to school and learn this stuff as as quickly as we can, of course, you know. Um, yeah. So we're in the process of writing some recruitment advertising with Jennifer, well, with Stephanie, her HR person there. And one of the things that we came across when we were sat having coffee and talking about it the other day was, so writing an advert for plumbers, you can't just be talking about the skills that they have now because the nature of the industry, like gas engineers, part of plumbing, yeah. it's all changing. Yeah. And you've got to start, I mean, we, we, we hit a brick wall. I've got to go and have a, a think about this in a bit. How do you signal how much the nature of plumbing is going to change within the lifetime, within a person's career, in two phrases? <laughs> like, how, how do you deal with that? It's, it's, uh, yeah. I think a big part of that when you talk about skills and training is moving away from the thinking that, you know, you leave school, you do your training in whatever it is, and then you go into work. And that's the that's the progression. We need to move to no, no. It, it, it's a career of learning. You know, whether that's upskilling at various points, whether it's additional, you know, short courses or things. But you know, we we have to move away from thinking that the the learning stops when you do your initial training and then move into the job. And I think that's part of it. And and it's certainly something that we try and embed. You know, within our onboarding and and within our individuals is is that constant kind of opportunity to develop to learn. Um, which will help their own progression. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what uh, Nathan Gambling is a perpetual advocate for. I don't know if you've encountered him, Beta Talk. We had him on a while ago. And his his uh, training entity, Beta Learn, mm-hmm. is all about like, sharing knowledge and continually. I mean, just you can you can increase your skill set through anecdotes, not just on the job. Through Absolutely. Through the discourse. Because that's how academia is supposed to work. That's it. And there's loads of professions that get it right. You know, CPD is just built into their their qualification. I think it's just applying that thinking then to practical vocational skills. Exactly, um, yeah. Construction is building physics manifest, that you're making the thing happen, that you can do it well or badly. And the same with heating design. Like in terms of net zero, you can't just rip out all the plumbing. You can't just switch overnight from gas to electricity. You've got to do better. So what? how can you do better with what you're working with, well, you've got to redesign the heating system and make it more efficient. Jennifer, yeah. do you find do you find um, when you're talking to um, you know uh, site operators or whatever, you know, people who are actually uh, doing the work when they when they've been through this kind of process, um, when they understand, you're kind of redefining what what construction should be for them and 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 what their career is. Do you find that their attitudes change and that they become? I'm just I'm wondering whether 
through this, I kind of feel that through this approach that we should be able to help to to attract new kinds of people into the industry as well. Maybe get the gender balance a bit better, and you know, mm-hmm. as well, which is obviously a, a, a shocking kind of pr- problem too. But you know, to to make people think this is there's, that there's prospects here, that it's part yeah. of the climate vice, um, and that, it's, that it's not the kind of the the hairy arsed man in the van. I mean, there's a place for them too, of course. Nothing wrong with that. No. You know, but you know what I mean. The, 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 that it could be a different kind of industry. Uh, uh, have you any sense of 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 seeing that kind of change of perception happening? Oh, massively. So I think it's really important. I think we have to redefine how we see certain roles within construction. We have to remove the snobbery that exists around them, and I think we can reposition them. You know, it needs to start at a kind of school education level, but with parents, you know, with everyone who's interacting with anyone that we're trying to attract into the industry to redefine it, that these are the roles that that are going to change the world. Like really, ultimately, they're, they're the most impactful. They're the ones that are going to make the difference. And to build in that purpose and that, you know, that massive agenda and, and the sense of responsibility they have and all of these really good things that we know helps attract people into certain occupations. It, it, but yeah, and removing the stigma, the snobbery around construction, and then starting from that point of redefining it as something that's that's it's not just important; it's critical. Like we are not going to achieve any of these targets or any of these objectives without these people. So they should be valued. Yeah, absolutely right. Right, I think we're coming up on time, so that might be a a, a convenient note to to finish on. Yes, <laughs> uh, an optimistic refrain. Um, so. Uh, in terms of if anyone wants to find out about you or get in touch with you, Jennifer, what's the best what's the best way to check you out? Yeah, um, I mean our website. Um, there's there's more information on our Skills Academy there, and kind of contact us. Um, LinkedIn, you know, there are ways. <laughs> there are yeah. lots of ways. Um, and it's great, you know, just the more conversations we can have with different people on these subjects, because I'm not here and by any means saying that we have all the answers. We absolutely don't. But we want to be part of that conversation to help get there. So, yeah, just come and yeah. talk to us. All right. So ACY and Co, if you Google that, yeah. Y yeah. spelled W-H-Y-T-E. That's uh, it. And there is a video about the Skills Academy that's just gone up on the yeah. website. Uh, so if yeah. you're interested in checking that out, uh, do so there. Yeah. And uh as we always say, like I'm sure we'll have you back. I mean, we'll be talking to you anyway. And uh, Jeff signaled in the chat that he's keen to get you into the magazine. So, uh, yeah, check the pages of Passive House. Uh, plus, all right, so last things, like, subscribe, and join ACAN, join the ACB, and uh, advertise and subscribe to Passive House Plus. And speak to Alex and I for any of the other comms work that we do. All right. Cheers, thanks for listening. Thank you so much, guys. Well, it's been a pleasure. Brilliant. Yeah, really really interesting. I like it.